Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody all around the world. It's December the 30th, 2022. We're all evaluating 2022, and of course, the image of 2022 as the Financial Times reminds us in their year in 11 charts, is the map of Ukraine, a complicated map, the map of war and the great challenge of 22 and certainly of 23 is rebuilding Ukraine, a war that's tragic and complicated. Um, one of the things that comes to mind, though, while we think about Ukraine and the map of Ukraine in 2022, is this has happened many times before. And the real tragedy of war is we forget it. Um, we're always focused on the current war. Uh, but two years ago, rather than the map of Ukraine, we saw an equally, if not more complicated map of Syria, made up of many different interests and groups, a terrible war that continues to rumble in a very low-level way. When you look at uh, headlines about Syria today, there were 10 oil workers killed, apparently, in eastern Syria, attacks, uh, Kurdish forces uh, arresting 52 militants. So uh, the war continues, and the diplomacy around the war continues. Um, both the uh, Turkish and Syrian defense ministers met in Moscow this week. Um, and who knows whether they'll resolve anything and who knows whether or not it will result in a, in a so-called rapprochement of Turkey and Syria and Erdogan and, uh, and Assad. Um, we did do a show on Syria this year with the prize-winning writer Joby Warwick, uh, we talked about how the Russia's uh, Syria intervention was a model for the Ukrainian war. This came from his new book, Red Line, The Unraveling of Syria and America's Race to Destroy the Most Dangerous Arsenal in the World, uh, a work of enormous importance and credibility by one of America's top journalists. So I'm thrilled that Joby is joining us again. Happy from, New Year, almost. Uh, almost Happy New Year, although not very happy, uh, Joby, certainly for the Ukraine. For, for people in Ukraine and for that matter in Syria. What's been the story of, of 2022? Is it rather like uh, yesterday's news or yesterday's fish and chips? It's gone stale in Syria in 2022. Well, it has been uh, out of mind, that's for sure. This is a, a, a frozen conflict. It hasn't been in the news, certainly. And yet, I think readers and, and viewers can't kind of forget about this conflict because it remains one of the most consequential in the world. And that is because it's never just been a civil war. It's never just been about two sides of, of you know, Syrian population fighting each other. It's always been a proxy war and a multidimensional proxy war. And you get a sense of that if you look at the map. You've got great powers involved. You've got the Russians and the Iranians heavily invested in keeping the Assad regime in place. You've got most of the Sunni world, the Gulf countries, the Turks to a great degree, uh, trying to push Assad out. And so they've been pouring billions of dollars into the conflict. And then in the middle of this, one of the great concentrations of, of uh, Islamist jihadist uh, militants in the world, including uh, elements of the Al-Qaeda and also a huge 
uh, portion of, of the Islamic State as we've known it the last few years. And your uh, your book, uh, you're, you're an expert on that as well, The Rise of ISIS, Black Flags was a Pulitzer Prize winning book. So you know this stuff inside out. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a scary story, unfortunately. Uh, and to add to the complexity of the map, and this is perhaps the most bizarre thing, the real superpower in the region is involved through its lack of involvement, which is, of course, Israel. Hmm. That's right, because Syria is, is one of the sort of ancient enemies of Israel, but they've mostly set out on this conflict in the civil war itself, anxious to see what happens and, and very anxious, particularly about the movement of Iranians uh, into, into the country in a big way. Their, their IRGC, their, their, their Quds force, their elite forces moving in, uh, moving weapons around, including weapons that could threaten Israel. So we've seen their involvement, and in, in, particularly in the last couple of years, as being one of mostly just smacking uh, Iranian targets whenever they see them. And with, with the acceptance from the Russians, the Russians haven't lifted a finger to stop it. And if anything, the Russians are more distracted than ever. And the Israelis feel emboldened whenever they see a threat materializing. They, they go after it in, uh, in a dramatic way with, with jets. Looking um, on the internet today, uh, which of course isn't always particularly reliable, uh, Bashar Assad seems to be rehabilitated there's a piece about talking turkey with him uh, uh, a piece uh, from the arab center in washington dc about how realistic an urgent assad rapprochement is three or four years ago this would have been unimaginable i mean assad was in uh, the hall of evil men with 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 hitler and pol pot mm. how, how has he escaped this is it PR? Is it simply because we recognize there's nothing better than Assad? We being whoever, mm -hmm. there's nothing better than Assad in Syria? Yeah, there's a bit of real politic behind some of it. The Jordanians, for example, a lot of their trade traditionally passed through Syria on the way to Turkey and to other locations. The Israelis uh, would like to see uh, you know, a, a calmer environment, environment to the north, stability and I think some of the other sort of the Arab Gulf countries are, are kind of looking at Assad as, as sort of the reality they have to accept. He's hardly the only bad guy or despot in the region. And also kind of pushing for a settlement are, are countries like Russia who would like to see this thing, uh, this conflict either go away so they can, you know, redeploy forces elsewhere. And they're just uh, there's a little bit of exhaustion after 12 years now uh, next month of fighting. And so there is some acceptance. And yet at the same time, much of the world refuses to accept Assad as legitimate, particularly in the West. They're not about to put their money behind rebuilding Assad's ruined country. And so you have this horrific situation where cities are not rebuilt, schools are not reopened, refugee camps fester and get larger, refugee flows continue. So it's, it's a, you know, obviously a, a vacuum in the middle of a very dangerous region. And the longer the conflict goes on, the more dangerous in many ways it becomes. And then there's still protests. Um, uh, one in Southern, I don't know, protesters in Southern Syria, according to uh, ABC News, are calling for the overthrow of Assad. How much domestic resistance to Assad within Syria still exists or is still active? It's remarkable to me, me to see these little pockets of resistance pop up because one thing Assad does very well is is control the areas that he does govern. There's this very strict repression of, of any kind of dissent. And yet we see some of these spontaneous uprisings bubbling up in various parts of the country, including, interestingly, in the town called Dura, which is down in the south, close to the Jordanian border. It's where the revolution began in 2011. And here we see protests starting to, to come up 
spontaneously, and it's mostly because of economic conditions. The, the economy is in collapse. Uh, the sort of the only thing that seems to to, to keep the economy going really is uh, is is illegal drug flows. We see that uh, Syria has. So it's sort of a mafia, and yeah. I know it's a bit of a stupid cliche, but it's a mafia state. It's it is. It's run by warlords of one kind or another, and Assad is the chief warlord. Yeah, and and like warlords everywhere, they they look for ways to to kind of generate income, and it's through contraband in many cases, including narcotics, and that's uh, that's a really worrisome development for the region. Uh, Joby, you talked about the resistance to Assad when the war began, and many of the analysts began making sense of it. It was interpreted in in terms of Assad's Alawite identity and his so-called tribe, or sort of. Uh, this minority Muslim group, the Alawites in Syria. Uh, is it still breaking down in that sense? You're an expert on um, ISIS. Are there still pockets of radical Islamic opposition to to, to Assad? Uh, either uh, it's, um, Syria is mostly a Sunni state. Is that correct? It is. And yet, as you as you pointed out, the country is ruled by an Alawite clique, which is a, a sort of a, a offshoot of Shiite Muslim Islam. <laughs> the Iranians, strangely, view uh, this this sect as heretical. And yet they embrace Assad and his and his regime, even though it's it's run by, by an organization they don't they re- recognize as religiously uh, legitimate. But but it, you're right. It's, it's a it's a patchwork of small you know, of various groups, uh, even Christians and other minorities. But the Sunnis are are dominant, uh, and yet the leadership is mostly uh, Alawite, and and they've been able to res- preserve power through brute force, and because a lot of the sort of the business, the elites of of Syria, regardless of what sect they belong to, see their salvation, see their survival in Assad. So they've clung to him since the beginning, even as their cities have have been you know decimated really by, by war over the last 12 years. Joby, I'm not a big fan of Thomas Friedman, the New York Times columnist, but he, he did write one good piece, I remember a few years ago about Syria, arguing that the, the war began as a consequence of global warming, of drought in Syria. To what extent do you interpret the Syrian war in terms of that economic crisis of drought and Syria being sort of exhibit A in a in a in a apocalyptic uh, world where we're destroying the planet. Mm. There is an interesting storyline that supports that. There are many different causes for the start of this conflict, and one of them is just the Arab Spring movement, which became quite contagious for for countries around the world, where young populations were were looking for ways to become like the rest of us and want to have more freedom and more economic, uh, you know, stability. And so they took to the streets. But back behind that, interestingly, there was a a period of of extreme drought uh, in Syria. And the consequence was that many farms went out of business and many young people were unemployed and ended up moving to the cities. So you have these large, young, restive populations. They became kind of the tender that helped ignite the, 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 the conflict uh, in, in 2011. So you can see the way that some of these, these really huge global forces can come, come together in a small, out-of-the-way place and become something really horrific. And it was certainly part of the, part of the, the fuel for this fire that, that erupted in 2011. And I wonder whether Syria is also uh, sort of an exhibit of what we might think of as a, a postmodern feudalism um, in, in the early 2015 first century. On the one hand, you have civil war, low-level civil war, massive violence, rule by warlords. Uh, 
fragmentation on the country. But then in a place like Damascus, relatively normal life goes on. If if we were to go to a map to Damascus today, would we know mostly that there'd been this terrible war in Syria? You wouldn't actually. And it's it's improved in its stability over the last few years as the fighting has receded mostly to the far corners of the country up in the northwest where there's a huge pocket of, of jihadists, a place called Idlib, uh, which is a city that's essentially, um, you know, an Islamic state. And then to the to far east, uh, there's 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 the, the Kurds and up on the border with Turkey, there are sort of autonomous Kurdish regions. So it's it's all kind of broken up and, and, and it doesn't really function as a country anymore. And then the sort of the elite power centers in Damascus, you, you'd go there and you could have a nice dinner and, uh, you know, enjoy a, a stay if you can get a, a visa and never know that a war is going on. So that the elites have really been uh, insulated from the conflict and from the violence over the last at least for the last five or six years. The more one hears about it, the more it sounds like its smaller neighbor whose history is intimately bound up with Syria, Lebanon. Hmm. Uh, what are the relations now? I mean, obviously, that the politics and the military implications are enormous in terms of Hezbollah. What, are, what is the relationship now between Syria or Assad Syria and Lebanon? Yeah, well, what I like to think about of the two is is they are quite parallel in in the sense that that you you see in Syria today uh, almost a mirror image of the kinds of of ethnic uh, you know very you know small groups of, of of people radicalized for various reasons at war with one another in a country that did not function and in which terrorist groups sort of ran around at will and that's that's a sense of what we have in Syria. And the two countries have also almost simultaneously experienced an economic collapse, and they are somewhat related. But you have a, a country where one portion of the population would, would love to have nothing to do with Syria and, and would love to essentially wall themselves off from that problem. And another huge part of the country, the, the Hezbollah and its supporters, are heavily invested in Syria, and they've spilt blood and treasure in Syria. They continue to be there in a big way. So the country is, is really very much divided about that conflict with, uh, with as I said, many, many Lebanese, you know, very much, you know, identifying with, with the causes, with the, the conflicts in, in, in Syria and having sent their soldiers and, and, and weapons and money to, to try to tip the balance in, in the country without success. The outrage in, uh, on the civil war in Syria, in Syria was perhaps most clearly articulated by Clarissa Ward, the CNN correspondent. She wrote a book about it. She was on the show back in 2020. She's moved on. Now she's in Ukraine. Her outrage has been shifted there. Is there any outrage left? Has the world simply <laughs> lost interest? I mean, the Clarissa Wards of the world, of course, professional war correspondents, they have to move. It's not their fault. I mean, they're in Syria one year, Ukraine the next, 10, 15 years ago, they were in Bosnia. It's just the yep. nature of things. But is anyone angry about Syria anymore? Is it completely forgotten for the most part outside, you know, outside the Erzurum and Moscow for whom, the, you know, the diplomacy is important? Yeah, it has become, at least in my country, a very forgotten conflict. It's extremely hard to get a Syrian story in the newspaper. And I know this from experience because people have stopped caring. People don't see it as important. And yet these, these frozen conflicts that we've put out of our mind have a way of reemerging. And Bosnia is another example in that sense. Very much. And that's starting to heat up again as well. And I do worry that 2023 is, is a year where we might go from frozen uh, 
the dangerous conflict to one that's uh, that's dangerous and unpredictable and maybe even a hot conflict. And there's many ways that could happen in 2023. I want to get on to 2023, but let's just go back to the Russians. When you were on the show in March of 2022, you talked about Russia's Syria intervention as a model for the Ukrainian war. At that point in March, it wasn't clear how that war was going to work out. If anything, we were fearing, but expecting a quick Russian victory. Um, how did the Russians perform in Syria? Do you think they were kind of misled by the, the ease of their military intervention so that Ukraine has turned into, it seems at least at this point, a, a disaster for them militarily? I think you're exactly right. It's been said that Syria was Putin's favorite war because it, it went so well for them. They were able to showcase their, their new capabilities. They'd become like the Americans in the sense that they can uh, use intelligence, drone warfare, you know, standoff strikes, uh, use air power to support uh, local ground forces in a way that didn't uh, force them to become involved uh, with boots on the ground. So it was a great, it was a happy war for the Russians. And yet it turned out to be a very poor model for them in Ukraine because Ukraine is a very different conflict. Ukraine is a much, much bigger, much better armed, much more sophisticated foe with support from the West, which the Syrians, of course, only had... Uh, the Syrian rebels didn't have very much of at all. And so they, I think they were, over, they were overconfident because of their experience in Syria. So the downside is we do see the Russians, now that they're on their back, uh, back heels with, in terms of their progress in Ukraine, reverting to some of the tactics we saw them use in, in Syria, which is decimation of cities, deliberate targeting of infrastructure, including hospitals. That same playbook is, is being seen in Ukraine right now. Yeah, it's interesting. We had, yeah, you mentioned drone warfare. We had Toby Walsh, one of the world's leading AI experts on the show a couple of days ago, talking about Ukraine as the first case of a, a drone war, a real drone war, equivalent to the First World War as a trench war, a tank war in the 20th century. Um, and it seems as if one of the reasons we we're not too outraged by that is because it's Ukraine using the drone successfully rather than the Russians. So I'm guessing that the drone warfare in Syria, the Russians were using it, but they didn't have any opposition. So it was an easy run for them. And they've been woken up in, in, um, in, uh, in, in Ukraine. Um, Joby, let's talk a little bit more broadly about this. We, we talked, we had a show with the, uh, Brookings Institute scholar Shadi Hamid uh, mm -hmm. earlier this year. He has a new book out, The Problem of Democracy, America, the Middle East, and the Rise and Fall of an Idea. Hamid makes the argument that America got democracy in the Middle East wrong in the sense that they should have embraced the Muslim Brotherhood, who weren't ideal, but certainly were better than the Assads and the other military dictators who replaced the Arab Spring. When we think back to what happened in in, in Syria, um, were there the, the shoots of democracy in Syria? Had Assad been defeated? I mean, we haven't even talked about Iraq, of course. Had Assad been defeated, is it conceivable that you'd have democracy today in Syria? Or would it have fragmented into just um, a, a Lebanese-style quagmire of, of mafia-run uh, communities? 
Yeah, my thinking has evolved on this a little bit. I used to be of the opinion that, yeah, there was this core of, of, of pro-democracy activists, and I've met so many of them, and, they're, and your heart goes out. They're very earnest and very sincere, and, and they want a democracy in their country. They want a normal country. They don't want to live, want to live in, in dictatorship. And in the early months of the uprising, these are the people that took the streets, just like in Tahrir Square in Egypt, students and, you know, factory workers and, and just people from all walks of life, you know, marching the streets and, and calling for things that we could all identify with, with like with freedom and freedom of expression. And yet those elements, those early sort of protesters did not have the resources uh, to, to sustain a fight against a, a country, a, you know, a military with, with, with tanks and guns. And so eventually the ones that are left standing are the, the radicals. And we saw that in, in Egypt with some of the more radical forces, you know, you know, including some elements in the Muslim Brotherhood taking control of the country. Under, uh, uh, and then in, in Syria, uh, it was the Islamists, the real, real radicals, the Al-Qaeda's and the, and the ISIS gang, you know, because they were the strongest. They are the ones who had the, the, the commitment and the staying power. They had, you know, military experience. They had weapons. Uh, and so there's no way ultimately that of these so civilians, these kind of pro-democracy protesters could have prevailed almost in any scenario. And on the other hand, you have a Russia and Iran that were absolutely determined, much more than we were, uh, to, to see the outcome of, of the conflict go a certain way. They were absolutely dedicated to seeing Assad survive much more than we were ever committed to, to making him go. So I think that sort of the, the ability of these aspirants, these, these young people with all these ideals to, to prevail and become a democratic country probably was never in the cards. It's just never something that in this day and age, in what we know in Syria, it just couldn't happen. And that's, that's a tragedy, but true. It is a tragedy. It's very depressing. And in, in a way, it seems as if it's the Iranians and the Russians who have won at least this battle of ideas. When you see that Netanyahu has come back to power in Israel, they're supposed to be our friend. They're supposed to be the the uh, the example of Western democracy. And yet Netanyahu may not be looking like Assad, but he's increasingly looking like just another Middle Eastern dictator. Yeah, well, yeah. very worried about that and also worried about the, the people who are advising him and who are part of his coalition who are going to be very aggressive uh, going after not just the Palestinians, but what they see as Iranian interests anywhere in the world. I'm afraid there'll be much more uh, inclined to to go on the offensive against Iran itself, if there's is if an opportunity develops, or if there's a conflict that's that's triggered by some, you know, seemingly minor incident somewhere in the world, you know, it's it's remains to be seen. And I also worry that because Netanyahu and his government are going to be so polarizing in the region, some of these temporary alliances that we've seen between Israel and the in the Gulf countries or with Turkey could become. Um, right. I mean, is there any good news? Uh, Donald Trump's son-in-law architected, if that's the right word, the Abraham Accords, which represented a sort of a rapprochement between Israel and some of the Gulf states. Is there any good news from the from the region, Toby? Joby? Well, the, the, I guess the one good thing right now that we we should take note of is that the the fight against the the extremists on the Islamic side have has, has gone very well just in 2022 because remember the year started with a, the killing of of the new ISIS leader Al Qurashi who was killed in a 
and a U.S. operation. Then in July, we saw, uh, not in Syria, but of course in Afghanistan, we saw the, the Al-Qaeda leader killed. And these groups are really struggling to reconstitute themselves. And we've saw something like 700 uh, uh, ISIS operatives killed just in the last year, 108 uh, raids by American and, and Kurdish forces against ISIS. So they really seem to have been decimated in Syria, in particular, also in Iraq. Um, and that's a good thing. We can all take credit, take comfort in that, because just a few years ago, as we know, there was a, a huge international threat to us all coming out of Syria. And that seems to have been quelled for the moment. But if, if civil war erupts further in Syria, if, if, uh, if there's a Turkish uh, incursion into, into Kurdish territory in northern Syria, there could be more fighting. And that, that always helps the extremists rise to the top so it just may not may not be a permanent victory but it has so, been so, so toby let, uh, jerry let's turn to 2023 it sounds to me from what you're saying is if we're damned if we do we're damned if we're not um on the one hand you don't want civil war on the other hand assad's in power hmm. this mass murdering monster uh so so from a a, a a humanitarian point of view in terms of wanting to believe in some degree of justice, what, what could we realistically hope for in 2023 in Syria? What advice would you give uh, Biden and his State Department on, on, on Syria in 2023? Well, I think the, the objective now, and it's, it's not a very satisfying one, but it is just to try to maintain stability. The stability is essentially a partitioned country with a let's face it, a Turkish-backed but mostly Islamic enclave in the northwest with a U.S.-controlled region to the east, uh, with Kurdish autonomy, autonomous regions uh, also in the east and north. Um, and that is, is an ugly situation. It, it certainly is at peace, but it has been stable. And I think the most we can hope for at the moment is that things don't flare up, that there aren't and then that, uh, what you didn't mention is you'd still have a rump Assad state, a, an yeah. Alawite-run state, a military, a nasty military dictatorship, and a failed state at that. They're, they're, the the economy is in free fall. It's a mafia uh, clique that runs the place, as you said. So that's not a very satisfying outcome, but it's it's better than a than a hot war. And I think uh, I think that's. Really, the Biden administration is distracted by so, so many other problems right now, but their fervent hope is that they can just keep things contained, frozen in, mm. a, in a pretty horrible situation, but frozen and not bubbling over and, and affecting other countries. Sykes and Picot must be turning in their graves, the British and French diplomats who created Syria out of the First World War. It seems, if anything, it's in a worse state now than it was over 100 years ago. Uh, Joby, happy new year. If it can be a happy new year, we'll have you back on the show. Keep reporting, keep talking about Syria because you're one of the few people who, who continues to do it. Uh, wh where else should people read and, and think and hear about Turkey if it's not in the newspapers? Hmm. Well, I think you've had some awfully good guests, I must say, uh, some real experts on the region, including just your, your guests this week on Turkey. And I, I do Zale, feel yeah, that, my old friend. Yeah, yeah, and I do feel that you know, as, as, as much as we try to provide a snapshot of the world every day in the newspapers, uh, there, there's so many other resources, including good podcasts that uh, right. have less, great uh, my, my, my advice would be uh, less Donald Trump, more Bashar Assad. Not that mm. we want Bashar Assad, but we need to hear about him. Yeah, we, we can't just walk away from these problems. And that's something that I think Trump was inclined to do, but didn't succeed in doing. Um, so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that.
Excellent.